Listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie and particularly grouchy today, but even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, geez, oh, peas, we could not be any more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, definitely antisocial, and terrified when Amy says she has an idea because that usually spells trouble. Is geez, oh, peas even a word? I don't know, it Carrie. Is. But I. I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover and maybe even if you aren't. I'm a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict. I apparently have a shoe problem and I treat a good thrift store like it's a national treasure. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other and sometimes a special guest or two about books. Each week we chat about what we're reading as well as other bookish topics like authors in the news, recent book to film adaptations, Weird stuff we've Googled while reading. And our TBR count. We're glad you're here. This week is one of the funniest shows we've done simply because our guests are just delightful. In fact, the show may be a tad longer than normal because we almost couldn't bear to cut any of our conversation out. They are the author, illustrator, and husband-wife team of Matthew Swanson and Robbie Bear, whose Cookie Chronicle books are a big hit among the 8- to 12-year-old crowd, although, honestly, their stuff is good no matter how old you are. They recently completed a year-long cross-country trip called the Busload of Books Tour in a remodeled school bus with their four kids and grumpy dog, I feel that dog, to do school visits to Title I schools in the continental United States. They teamed up with a nonprofit to fund the trip and provide books for children. We talk with Matthew and Robbie about their cross-country trip, what thing they collected along the way, and Robbie's favorite scent that you just can't buy in stores. But first, I want to let you know that after our last episode, I took Carrie into my closet to look at my shoes, and she said it was not as bad as what she thought. But I do have a little pile of shoes that I am looking to get rid of. Wow. Just so you know. Just so you know. Okay. But I did wear a new pair that I got last week and you saw them this weekend. They were they had, cute. They were they were tennis shoes that had tiny little dogs all over them. And you said those are very cute. And so see, my shoe collecting issue is sometimes productive. Okay. Sometimes. Whatever you have to tell yourself to <laughs> justify it. <laughs> So, Carrie, why are you grumpy today? It has been one of those days, you know, where you have a plan, you think you know what your plan is going to be, and then life intervenes, and you have to do all sorts of things that weren't on your plan. Well, it has been that way all day for me. And so I'm trying to finish up a graduate class, and I had to make an appointment this morning and go pick up my son and take him to the doctor, which I wasn't expecting to do. And I mean, I'm just cranky. I just am. I just, I wanted my day to go a certain way and it is not going that way. And when that happens, you know, people get a little bit, and so. So how much longer do you have of the grad class? This week is it. That's why I want to get it done. That's why I'm like, let's get this stuff done because this is it. Oh, awesome. Okay. off my plate. Yeah. Tell people what your grad class is. Leveraging technology for assessment. Doesn't that sound riveting? Oh, so really boring. No wonder you're grumpy. Yeah, it was all right. I'm uh, what I'm checking a box, you know, I'm checking a box so that I can renew my teaching certificate. So yeah, that's really sexy, isn't it? Leveraging <laughs> technology for assessment. Woo! I'm very excited because once this graduate class is done, I can get back to my reading life because that has taken a hit. And I I want to get back to reading my books. So And that's probably why you're grumpy because you're is. not getting to I'm read enough that's books. That's right. That's right. I'm jumping through hoops. And I've been jumping through them for six, seven weeks now, and I'm tired of jumping. So I just want to sit in my chair and read my books. Almost there. You know, you being grumpy is just like Matthew and Robbie's dog Bumbles. Dumbles. Is it Dumbles? Dumbles. Dumbles Dumbles. or Bumbles? I'm Uh, pretty sure it's Dumbles. Dumbles. (laughs) Apparently, their dog is also a grumpy dog. And that poor dog had to meet thousands and thousands of school children. 
on their trip. I, I feel for Dumbles. I mean, Dumbles is kind of like me. Dumbles has the best possible life a dog could have. And he still has this look on his face like, <sighs> and that's how I am. Like, I have this great <laughs> life and I'm like, <laughs> I'm cranky. So, <laughs> And you'll get to hear more about that when we talk with Matthew and Robbie, which is right now. We're so pleased to have Robbie Bear and Matthew Swanson with us. One is an author, one is an illustrator. We are so pleased to have them with us. They're going to be talking about their professional work and also some adventures they had on a book bus. So thanks so much for for being with us. Thank you for having us. It's nice to be here. Absolutely. So I am so thrilled because I read one of your Ben Yokohama books last year and I raved about it on the show. And then I started following you all on Instagram. And I think I caught you in maybe the middle of this cross-country bus trip that you were taking with your family. And I would check it every day to see where you were and what kind of fun things that you were doing. And so when we had the opportunity to talk to you, I I was just incredibly thrilled. You all are married. And Matthew, you were the writer. And Robbie, you were the illustrator. You were the author of many children's books. I'm struggling with where to start with this interview because there's so many things that we could talk to you about. But maybe let's start at the beginning. So how did you two meet? And were you already established as writer and illustrator when you met, or did that come later? We were established as as lost uh, <laughs> folks who who knew nothing about their destiny or which way was up or down. No, we we were in college when we met first. Briefly, briefly. we knew each other in yeah. college. But as we like to say, we were we were dating much more impressive people yes. at the time. Uh, <laughs> after college, we we lowered our our we expectations our and. Uh, and no, I was running one day. I, I ran every day after work, and I and I ran behind a building that I usually ran on the other side of. And there was Robbie standing next to a dumpster. I, I don't like, remember I, this dumpster. And I said, but apparently Robbie, that's what I was doing. I remember <laughs> you. It's me, Matthew. And she said, it's me, Robbie. And we exchanged email addresses. Yes. And, and then we wrote emails to each other for about a year. Ferociously, every yes. day. I liked this person. Uh, yeah. Ro- Robbie, Robbie uh, endeared herself to me. I did? But yes, you, you described <laughs> yourself. Oh. You said, I'm wearing brown pants today and a brown shirt today i look like a piece of poop and i was like this is the girl for me any woman with enough self-confidence to describe herself that way is worth sticking with so that was, that's our origin story ladies yeah. learn from the master <laughs> so how did you decide to start working as a team publishing books we were living together and I was going to be applying for graduate school and I knew I wanted to go to graduate school for illustration. I needed stuff to illustrate. Matthew was taking a writing class at the time and he was writing these weird little stories that were sort of very voicey, but not really about very much, not very plot driven, nope. like all of the things that, that you're not supposed terribly to terribly coherent friends. Yeah. Uh, so like no plot, no description, no character description, none of that stuff. Um, but very voicey and very funny. And so I was like, why don't I just like try to make some illustrations that go with these weird little vignettes that you're writing? Mm -hmm. And I did. And so we talked about kind of what the ideas were that like, what was he trying to get at with this piece of writing? And, and it ended up being like this really fun project of back and forth talking about ideas and like what could be in the illustration. So I mean, to this day, we hope that when we make our books, there's a real interdependence between picture and word and that you get much more out of the story as told by the words when you bring in the illustration. Yeah. So that's really when this fascination with the possibility of combining words and pictures began. Then we said to ourselves, this is what we want to do when we grow up. Um, we figured uh, growing up would happen eventually. Uh, <laughs> so we made that book. We made a couple of books. Robbie went to graduate school. And it wasn't like with the aim of publishing necessarily. We knew that they were super weird. No, that first book, there were three copies made because <laughs> making books was so arduous at that time. <laughs> that we had to hand cut every piece with an yeah. exacto knife. And one of the books went to my parents who basically oh. were like, that's weird. And that was like the response that we got. So well, they were right. They were right. I mean, they were right. <laughs> we loved what we were doing, but we were not making books for other people at that yeah. time. We were making them for yeah. ourselves. But life happened. 
Robbie graduated from graduate school. I got a job. I applied to graduate school. Matthew did not get into. I was rejected by all the graduate schools, friends. I got rejected by one of them twice. The (laughs) University of Minnesota sent me the same letter on consecutive Mondays. Same letter sent by the same guy. They were like, yeah, they were like, in case it wasn't clear last week, we continue to not want you this week. Uh, So, so our our plan B was to quit our jobs, use a year's worth of savings to spend a year self-publishing, making books together. We, we sold our house. We, we, yeah, yeah, we sold everything. We, we moved into this this hayloft, uninhabitable space above Robbie's mom's pottery studio in this little town on the eastern shore of Maryland where she grew up, Chestertown. And we started self-publishing and we had so much fun. We and, thought we were just going to do it for a year yeah. and that that year would somehow magically transform Matthew into an acceptable. No, uh, no friends. I got, I got no better at writing. That's not true. I slowly got better at writing. My advice to writers is simply persist and keep writing. Yeah. Long story short, my old boss offered me my job back from a halftime work from home basis. And that was enough to pay our bills, allow us to have some kids and keep self-publishing. We self-published for about a decade before we, made the connections in the commercial publishing world. And now we kind of sort of and support our self, ourselves. Our self-publishing yeah. was those picture books. Yeah. We called them uh, odd commercially non-viable picture books for adults. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's what they were. <laughs> yes. So that's where we started. We yeah. did not ever think that we were going to be children's book authors, no. but yeah, that's where we we've ended up and we actually love doing it. We it's, love it. It's yeah. been great. We yeah. feel very fortunate that this gets to be our life. So what was it that flipped the switch? I mean, was it a certain book that you created that you started putting out there in terms of like getting a, a, a publisher? Is is that mm. kind of what happened? No, we actually never pitched a particular book. What we did was we, we went started... to lots of comic shows yeah, and book festivals and we slowly made connections with. We'd people. always have a table with like all of our books. We had a booth, and we would meet lots of people. And in meeting people, we met some folks in the publishing industry. The books that we self-published, we had on subscription, and that was sort of a novel idea back before you could get like stakes and everything, everything. else on subscription. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of a novel idea at the time, and so we just would add these people in the publishing industry to our list. And, and um, so they'd keep getting our yeah. books. They'd keep you reminding about us. And this guy from Disney, Jesse Post, who now owns this wonderful independent bookstore in upstate New York, Postmark Books, took our book that he bought at the Independent Comic Festival to a production meeting, shared it with an editor. It was the format of book that she was trying to make, which is a mix and match book where the panels flip and the stories recombine. And so she called us and said, could you make a book like this for me? It was our big break in one way. In another way, it was <laughs> preposterous because we were writing a mix and match book about the superhero squad, which is like the Marvel little kid superheroes. So Hulk can only use his super strength to flatten cans so they can be more efficiently recycled. There can be no meanness. <laughs> there can be no rancor or blood. Yes. But it was our foot in the door at a big hmm. publishing house. Our, our names were printed in like three point type on the back. Oh of my gosh. I had, I had to get out a magnifying glass to prove to my dad that I'd written the book. <laughs> but. But here's the thing. There's, you know, advice to other creators. We we took it really seriously. We worked really hard. We did the best possible book about philanthropic superheroes we possibly could. <laughs> and that editor at the end of the process said, I like you guys. What else do you have that we could work on together? So, you know, we gave her another one of our self-published books uh, called The Babies Babies are in everything. everything. It was part of a trio of books. The baby is disappointing. Babies are in everything and baby apocalypse that we made as birth (laughs) announcements when our first three children were born. And, um, and she said, this babies are in everything. That's a great title. If you change everything Everything else else about it, we can make it into a book for the children's market. So that was our first book with our own creative content. And from there, um, we've made a book or two every year ever since. So once we got our foot in the door, we've uh, really enjoyed a lot of opportunity to keep telling stories. And that stories. editor really believed in us. Yeah. Really, she really has pushed Yeah, her name us. is Erin Stein. Yeah. She is wonderful. What I would love, I mean, if I could just snap my fingers, you would yeah. have an entire line of books geared towards other weird adults. Because yeah. I, for one, would mm. snap that book up mm-hmm. in a heartbeat. We'll have well, to send you a pack. We will send we you. We have plenty of weird books in a box under our vault. bed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we published 45 books in the Idiot's Book series is what it was called. 
<laughs> which are our odd, satirically non-viable picture books for adults. They, oh. uh, they, they can still be had in the in the dusty corners of the yes, internet. Yes. But, uh, oh, we can okay. Talk, yeah, we can talk after the because <laughs> right? I'm all in. I mean, as all soon right. as I heard that, it's sold. Okay. That that is our all-time <laughs> best-selling self-published yes, book yes, for yes. sure. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. What I want to know is you're moving along, you're you're publishing these books, sometimes, you know, two a year maybe, and, you know, you've got four kids. At what point yeah. did you say, let's take an old bus and trick it up and travel across the country with our four kids and our dog? Yeah. So the initial process idea started when we started publishing children's books, and we would get invited to elementary schools to be their author visit. And we started going to these. It was very exciting. We were getting paid to do these author visits. And you can see how exciting it is for the kids. Like if you've never been to an author visit, you should just go because you see kids at their best. They're excited. They want to talk about books. They're so excited to read. Um, And it's great. It's really like the best thing ever. And we noticed though, that most of all the schools that we were being invited to were very well-resourced schools, Hmm. Um, schools that had a lot of opportunities for the students. And we kind of were like, well, this is great. We can see what a difference it makes for these kids, but there are kids that we are not getting to who could absolutely benefit from this kind of interaction. You so, know? so there's a designation, a federal designation, Title I. Title I schools have a certain percentage of their student body that qualifies for free or reduced lunch. It's a good metric of a school that is serving uh, a low-income population, might not have the resources that other schools do, probably is not going to have the funding and the priority for an author visit. So our own school in our own community here in Chestertown, Maryland, is a Title I school. Mm-hmm. Robbie and I both attended Title I schools growing up. It's personal to us. We wanted to do something to help. It's easy for us to donate our time and go to a school visit at Garnett Elementary School. But the other problem is the kids at Garnett are probably not going to have the ability to buy our book. So mm-hmm. we don't want to get them excited about the book and then say, sorry, you can't read it. So to us, it was important to make sure every kid got a book. So we started a GoFundMe. No idea if we'd be able to raise the money to buy a hardcover book for every student and teacher. And honestly, at the time, it was hardcover because our only kids' books that we had out, they hadn't come out in paperback right, yet. Right. Mm. So we just said, we'll just buy the kids' books. It's going to be more expensive because they're the hardcover versions. So it might take us longer to fundraise. We'll, we're just going to figure it out. So we said, we'll figure it out. We'll buy books for each of the kids. And we raised the money in like, a day and a half. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. So $3,500, not just friends, not just people in town, but people across the country who wrote saying, I remember how important books were for, for me growing up. I remember how important author visits were for me growing up. So we did it. The kids went bonkers. The principal talked to us about kids who'd never been seen with books, asking if they could skip recess to read their books. Teachers mm-hmm. talked about how they took the themes from our assemblies and worked them into curriculum and that there was just this this excitement in the wake of our visit and to the point of hardcover books, kids would say to the teachers, look, I got a real book. I got a tough book. Hmm. So even when kids from low income communities do have access to books, often they're old books, books they can't relate to, and books that, that aren't very appealing. They're worn out. So these kids all got a new hardcover book. They got an assembly that related to the book thematically. They had a fun day. And as we found on our tour, one of the big benefits of going into a low-income community that's often overlooked, underappreciated, disrespected, is the feeling of pride that comes from being chosen, that comes from being seen for something special that that community doesn't usually get. So there's this really exciting other feeling of the kids feeling really good about themselves because we're there. We did this one school visit in our local elementary school. And we said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is so great. These kids are so excited. How do we find more schools that could use a visit like this? And it turns out <laughs> there's, there's 47,000 <laughs> schools in this yeah. country. So, And there was one in the next county over. Yeah. And there was a woman who taught there who found out what we did here. And she said, oh, can you come do it at our school? So we did it at her school. We did it at the next county over. And so we basically did a handful of schools in our local area. Mm -hmm. And we said, this is great, but this is a problem everywhere. I mean, you're skipping an important part, which is when Robbie and I first started dating. She told me she dreamed of riding around the country on a horse. I wanted to see our country. (laughs) And I was like... And I thought that the best way to see it would be by horse. uh, I I said, I love this woman. (laughs) However, I don't want to spend a year 
uh, driving around on a horse. So I got a horseback riding lessons. Yeah. We rode horses for three hours. It destroyed our hamstrings. We, we were like, I, I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to walk again. There's no said, way that we're going to be able to ride horses across the country. He was like, I need a new dream, man. So, so the new dream, you know, we took Robbie's wanderlust and we packaged it with this desire to serve Title I communities. And we said, why don't we do this across the country? We'll take our kids. We'll spend a year. We'll have a great family adventure. We'll visit schools in every state. Because the fact is there are Title I schools everywhere. Mm. If there's a Title I school in Chestertown, Maryland, which is a lovely, historic, charming town, if there's a Title I school here, there's a Title I school within a stone's throw of pretty much anywhere. And and it's not something that many people in our community knew before we started talking about it. So, yes, our mission was to go to 53 schools, was to give away 25,000 books to students and teachers. But there was the other mission. Amy, I believe you said you followed our adventure online. Yes. We used our online posts every day to try to help people understand the challenges facing our nation's public schools and try to rewrite the narrative about the schools being bad or the students being bad or the teachers being bad. No, the schools are trying their hardest and they're facing an environment where they are dealing with students who come to school with lots of additional challenges that relate to poverty, whether it's homelessness or hunger or emotional challenges or substance abuse or violence, or trauma. All kinds of trauma, yeah. Our teachers, our, our, the teachers are working their tails off every day. Drove around this country, went into these schools. We were impressed every single day. Robbie, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you told me that you wondered what we would encounter. Yeah. Right? I uh, Honestly, before we left, my expectation was that it would be kind of a bummer that we would see the failures in the schools that we keep hearing about, right? And we did not. We saw teachers coming to school every day, loving these kids, making them feel safe, teaching them as best as they could, given the circumstances, meeting the students where they were. Yes. So yeah, it was absolutely inspiring and heartbreaking that we are not giving them the respect that they deserve. So we tried to yes. turn the narrative in our small way, and uh, we had a great time uh, interacting with these fabulous kids all over the country. Yeah. Well, I want to know about the logistics because oh. <laughs> I mean, did you just put a map, or did you contact schools? Talk to me. I, yes. I get a little wonky have, about that. I have a very large spreadsheet. Um, yeah. So. Basically Basically, what we did was we were like, we want to have an application process and we want to make sure that it's Title I schools. And the best way that we figured to do that was we partnered with First Book, which is a national organization uh, that's been around for about 30 years. And they provide high quality, low cost books to people serving Title I communities. So it's mostly teachers and librarians, but there are also pediatricians. There are also social workers workers who can be members of First Book. And so it's an online catalog, basically, and you can order your books, you know, online and get them for very cheap. And a lot of times First Book gives coupons away where you can get free books. But they have half a million members. Yeah. So in order to get a reasonably manageable applicant pool, They sent out invitations to all of their members who had ordered our books from the marketplace. So it was about 1,100 teachers, fortunately, in every state. And we got about 400 applications. And we reviewed the applications based on size of school, location of school, racial background, demographics of school, an essay basically saying, what would this experience mean to your community? And the question, have, have you had an author visit before? So we prioritized serving schools that hadn't. We prioritized having a mix of urban, rural, and suburban schools across the country. With a weight on rural schools. We had about half rural, a quarter urban, and a quarter suburban. Uh, In part because those rural schools don't have access. There's an author that's going through the Bronx every now and again. But we did go through through Flatland, Well, When we had our first Zoom with the educators... Uh, I believe it was the person from Flatlick said, are you sure you know where we are? Are you sure that you're coming? <laughs> Asked several times, wanted to make sure that it wasn't a mistake. But but the yeah. point is, if you spend a year driving around the country, you can go anywhere. Yeah. And so we did. And yeah, the, the rural bias is, is, our, is our own bias. Um, you know, we're from a rural community and we see that the opportunities uh, are not the same. So in any case, that's how we partner with First Book to select the schools. And then, Robbie, let me praise you. Robbie learned learned how to use this massive database system where she created so many fields of data. She charted out our year 
based on average weather in various places so that we would you know, start in New England and go through the upper Midwest, then swing south and then swing back so that we were always in the place least likely to be imperiled by weather. <laughs> we started with the schools. Those were the fence posts. And then from there, Robbie planned every single night of a 350-night adventure a couple of weeks in advance, right? And yeah. used tools to book campgrounds, state parks. We never had to spend the night in a Walmart parking lot. We were no. prepared to. I but, did not want to, so I made that not happen. Robbie is a master <laughs> logistician. If I was in charge of this trip, I just don't think we would have made it out of Delaware. I, <laughs> I, I was the driver, yes. um, which requires patience and care, but Robbie is the one who deserves all of the credit for the three million moving pieces that had to come so, together. Carrie loves to plan travels, and so oh, Carrie, oh, I wonder what you're thinking about having to plan every night across the country trying to to find i well i i think that they bring an enthusiasm that i don't have (laughs) any cell in my body so i think i think that's what you know if you're passionate if you're motivated you will get it done let me tell you this this would have been a very different trip without the children Mm -hmm. I tried every day for us to be doing something interesting and, and stimulating and rewarding. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where if it had just been me and Matthew, we would have driven to the place that we were doing the school visit. And then we would have stayed there it, like and watched TV for <laughs> <laughs> four days yeah. until we had to drive to the next school. So yeah, it's true. Uh, it's yeah. true. Because the kids were, were homeschooling. So that this was part of their adventure and part of their education. It yeah. turned out to be great that we did all these things. No, it was but, awesome. But we're yeah. less enthusiastic at the end of the day. We, yeah, it's sure. good that this it is a morning interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to know about the bus because it, it, we're not talking like a, one of these super nice like what are, you campers. what are you saying about our bus? Wow. I'm saying is, wow. it, I mean, it, it's a school bus, right? That you sort of modified, we went, right? Yes. We went to the Hershey, Pennsylvania RV show, which is one of the biggest RV shows in the country. And we were looking at this 65 foot mega bus with a 73 inch flat screen TV so you can watch <laughs> while you're grilling. And we got so disheartened. We said, oh, we don't have $1.5 million. <laughs> so our friend who came with us, uh, Brian, who's a contractor and an old car guy, he said, let me get you a school bus and we'll fix it up for you. More. Two weeks later, Robbie had found the perfect bus. We got a 23-foot bus. It's a Thomas school bus with a Caterpillar engine and a Freightliner chassis. Those were not things that I was paying attention to. <laughs> no. but it, it was, I was like 23 feet. Perfect. It was the right length. Yeah. We did not want to ride a big bus. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a small bus. And our friend Brian spent about a year converting it for us. So I think the most important thing he did is he got this six by 10 foot pop-up sleeping platform that he welded to the top of the bus. And that's where the four children slept. He did lots of nice conversions to add a generator, storage bins. We have a sink, a microwave, mm -hmm. a toaster oven, a refrigerator. And he just did a beautiful We have no bathroom. There are lots of bathrooms. We used 900 bathrooms this year on a longer (laughs) interview. I could describe them all to you. I took copious notes. But um, Overall, overall, I want to say America's bathrooms... They, they're B, pretty good. B plus plus. B plus plus. Yeah. yeah. Um, the bus worked great. We drove 34,000 miles and the bus did it. It, it, it did drove it. across British Columbia and the Yukon. It yeah. just rocked it. And we, 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 we were sure there was going to be bus calamity. Yeah. But we love the bus. We're keeping yeah. the bus. We're going to keep using the bus. Uh, for future adventures and literacy. So more on that to come. Well, and I think that the bus is the perfect symbol. Like I think one of those, you know, million dollar things that you saw at the trade show just wouldn't have had the same feel, right? Like it makes sense that a bus would be going to the schools. And one of the things that I love that you did was that there was like a map of the United States painted on the side. And as you would visit schools, a teacher, I think, of of the school would then mark off their state or color in their state. Yeah. Which I loved. You know, it was a great conversation starter. The thing about the bus is that it gave people permission to come talk to us. So I I painted a big mural on the bus. We did not mention that. So the bus looks like, you know. A preposterous clown show. Ridiculous, yes. Like a bunch of clowns. (laughs) <laughs> ran into the bus and splattered themselves yes, all over the bus. That's um, what it looks like. People who we just honestly would never have had conversations with yeah. would come up, ask about the bus. We'd find out, oh, your aunt is a teacher. Um, oh, you uh, loved reading when you were a kid. You know, it, everybody has some connection to reading or teaching, or most people did. 
throughout the entire year, we didn't meet a single person yeah. who was cynical about what we were doing. Yeah. And more often than not, people would ask how they could support us. They would pull money out of their wallets. They would share our story on Instagram. One thing that we learned was that generosity creates generosity. If you do a generous thing and put it out into the world and other people see it, they are inspired to do the same thing. We have a fundamental desire to do good, to connect with one another through good acts. And it's it was just really heartening to see people yeah. respond to the bus, it to the story, to the mission. Absolutely restored my faith in humanity. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I want to know how your kids reacted to this cross-country trip. I'm yeah, sure that it was an amazing learning experience. I think that there's no way to know really what they learned. I think it's all, it's going to come out for the rest of their lives, the lessons that they learned. I think that ultimately they learned flexibility and being able to roll with things. You know, our daughter missed her freshman year of high school doing this. She was very thoughtful about it. She sort of understood, you know, in the times that she was feeling homesick or like out of sync with her friends. Uh, she understood that this was a unique opportunity and that she really was getting to do something special. Also, we called this like the awesome women tour. We w met so many like strong, amazing women on this tour that it was like great for her to be ah. able to meet all these women. So her experience, I think, was just exponentially amazing. And the boys, hilariously, they just sort of shrugged their shoulders. Like everybody's like, so what did you think when your parents told you you were going to be riding a bus around the United States? They're like, what do you mean? They're like, we, we, that's what we're doing then, I guess. This that's isn't, this isn't <laughs> accidental. <laughs> Listen, first of all, we've been talking about this trip for their entire lives. We've yeah. been talking about it off and on for 10 years. So they were amply warned. They had a sort of <laughs> fatalistic approach yes, to I it. Yes, I think that they yes. never occurred to them that they could be like, that's a terrible idea. But, but also... <laughs> We spend six months every summer off grid in Alaska uh, in a fishing compound. Uh, that's what Robbie's that's family other, does. That's another for another podcast. So, and, and they, they've <laughs> shared one small eight by eight bedroom for their entire lives. So, like they're used to some of the conditions that we asked them to yeah. embrace on the bus. So, I, I think it was an easier transition. And honestly, they got to have lots of fun. We did a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. And I have to mention this, that you, you came with one dog, but when you got home, you had two dogs. You Why do you have to tell people that? a little puppy <laughs> along the way that was so that, adorable. That makes us look like uh, irresponsible people. We Amy. are irresponsible um, people. We, we, we met our friend Amy for ice cream in Provo, Utah. Yes. And our son Kato looked out the window and said, oh, there's puppies next door. Can we go look at the puppies? And we say to ourselves, what's the it, risk? It was like a puppy shop. <laughs> no, one, no one's going to get a puppy while they yeah. live on a bus. I was like, hey, this is great. They always talk about like taking puppies to yeah. like college dorms, giving them good endorphins, yeah. and then everybody's happy when it's over. So I was like, this is great. They'll get their puppy love, they'll yeah. get their endorphins, and then we'll drive away and everybody will be happy. No, friends. That was not what happened. We, we, we bonded <laughs> we, with the puppy. We so, drove away and oh, the children were just disgusting. They were crying. <laughs> These, these previously stoic children. So we drove away. We yes. drove two hours away. We camped for two nights. Third morning. Matthew wakes up and he goes, I got to call and see if that puppy is still there. I, I had a crisis. Oh. I had a crisis of, of wondering what would happen if, if someone else adopted that puppy yeah. and not us. So we, we did. We, we went back and we got that puppy. We surprised the children. Yeah. We told them I was going to buy motor oil. And when I came back uh, with a puppy instead, they were very, that's weird. Um, he's a delight and I have no regrets. He is yeah, wonderful. His best. name is Goji and he made so many children happy. He did. So did Dumbles. Our dog Dumbles is an inveterate grump. He's just grumpy. And over the course of the year, he was pet by 25,000 children. Yeah. Because after the assemblies, we would bring all the children out to the bus um, so they could take pictures with us and their teachers and they could meet Dumbles. And, and honestly, that's all they cared about. They didn't, uh, when they heard <laughs> that there was a dog to pet, they were like, who cares about books, you? These who books? needs literacy? Yeah. Uh -uh. Yeah, <laughs> we want no. to pet the dog. Yeah. And so Dumbles suffered through this. Yeah. And we have about a million pictures of Dumbles <laughs> with an expression on his oh face that is like, get me oh. out of here. Yeah. And just kids with delight and joy. <laughs> he deserves hazard pet. He really yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> I am the human version of that. So <laughs> you, you laughing over here. I'm like, hey, this is hitting too close to home. <laughs> we could probably spend the whole episode talking about your trip. I do want to ask you a little bit about your writing lives. I'm all wondering right. how you all work together. Like who starts, who finishes? How oh, does boy. your collaboration work? 
Yeah, Matthew always starts. When we did our self-publishing as an experiment, which was the whole self-publishing thing, we were like, uh, how about I'll go first and I'll draw a bunch of pictures that have the same characters and certain similar thematic things visually. And then Matthew gets to put them in order and write a story. It is absolutely the worst book that we've ever made. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. I think what I have learned about myself, part of the reason why I like being an illustrator is I am not an ideas generator. I am a responder. I like to take what somebody else does and add my spin to it. So Matthew always goes first. And I like a blank slate. Yeah. So, and, and, I have gotten better since those twice rejected by the University of Minnesota days in telling <laughs> a coherent story. I've learned a lot about storytelling, but I'm still not very interested in providing a lot of description of characters or settings. So Which it creates a is lot of awesome for me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It allows me to do my own storytelling in the illustrations because Matthew leaves a lot of space for the illustrations. I'm still interested just, in yeah. voice mm-hmm. and, and humor. Our books are funny. And Robbie often gets to complete the joke or take it in a new direction with the illustrations. Yeah. I read one of your Ben books, uh, the first one. Ben Yokoyama and the Cookie of Doom. That's yes. yes that, what I loved about it was that you can't really have the words without the pictures and you couldn't have the pictures without the words. Like yeah. they're so integral to one another. And I'm not a huge graphic novel reader because I want more words generally. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this was a nice combo. I like the way you two work together. I like what you produce with your... You have permission to keep doing it. (laughs) Just try and stop us. Um, We've been told by librarians that the style is called hybrid books and that it's an increasingly growing space where it isn't a graphic novel. It's not broken into panels, but there's a real interplay between words and pictures and we love it. Our first middle grade series the real McCoys is even more densely illustrated and there's even more overt overlap between the pictures and the words. But yeah, that's, that's what's fun for us. I love when I'm coming up with the stories, trying to leave low hanging fruit for Robbie to grab onto <laughs> with the illustrations, knowing that she will. And uh, Matthew's yeah. writing is full of metaphors, mm-hmm. which are super fun to illustrate. Yeah. And it's, it's also fun for kids to see a metaphor like spelled out yeah. in illustrations. Yeah. So uh, it's a way of learning about yeah. metaphor without being taught. It's yeah. a, you know, it's a way of experiencing metaphorical figurative language through the interplay and uh, hopefully coming to appreciate it. Well, my final question is what's next? Because I know, you know, the bus I think is being stored somewhere. Do you have more plans with the bus? Yeah, the bus is going to continue doing this kind of work. We're trying to shore up some partnerships with the same partners that we had this time around. First Book, and I think the thing we should have said is the Build-A-Bear Foundation, which partners with First Book on literacy efforts, um, gave a a full-sized reading buddy, Teddy Bear, to all 25,000 kids that we met this year at the end of the tour. So we're hoping to continue partnering with them because research has shown that kids learn to read more confidently, more fluently, will read more often if they get to read with a non-judgmental friend. So reading with a pet Mm -hmm. or with a stuffed animal. So we want to continue those partnerships. We're working on that now. We're going to continue working with Washington College. We've been doing this year-long research study. We didn't mention this when we talked about the tour, but it's probably the most impactful thing that we did as part of this tour. So we worked with the Department of Education at Washington College. And they ran a study along with our tour, uh, sort of measuring attitudes uh, about reading and writing and drawing. And this has never been measured. You can ask any teacher or librarian, does a school visit create excitement? Does it it promote reading? Does it stir creativity? And they will say emphatically, yes. But it's never been proven because Mm. author visits are one-off experiences. So our tour provided this really... Uh, rare, maybe a singular opportunity to study the phenomenon across the entire country, across a really diverse group of students. They collected data from, I think, 11,000 subjects, and they're mm-hmm. thrilled with what they've learned, which is that in all three categories across all age groups, the answer is yes, there's a demonstrated assembly effect where kids mm-hmm. had more positive attitudes about reading, writing, and drawing the day after our assembly than they did the day before. So we're excited to keep working with them to keep collecting data. They also collected a lot more data that they're going to, they're going to have enough data to do many different studies. They're only in the preliminary throes of it, but the primary question was answered in the positive. So that's great for us. 
but also that they're able to take available data from, you know, the federal government, from states, and overlay it with the data that, that we collected in the schools. And the upshot is hopefully more funding and more legitimacy for these kinds yeah. of literacy interventions and yeah. more kids in more Title I schools and more kids across the board able to, to experience them. In terms of books... We are pitching several new series. We have a couple of picture books that we want to make about the tour. So we have dived back into work. We spent a whole year away from our desks and we are making up for lost time. That is fantastic. We could talk to you for hours about this, I feel like, because you have a whole Alaska story that's very interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wish we had like a three hour long podcast, but we don't. We're we're too wordy. We're too wordy. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think everybody needs to take like a little break. I need to, I need to get a drink, collect my thoughts. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about what we're reading. We're back with Robbie Bear and Matthew Swanson, the husband wife team who do all kinds of amazing books like the Cookie Chronicles and took an across the country bus tour to deliver books to title one schools and with Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? I was really hoping you would do some kind of interesting thing about me. Like, although I haven't done any of those things. And with Carrie. Boring old Carrie. Who has nothing going on. Carrie has nothing going on. That's right. All right. So I read this book recently. It's called Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice by Vanessa Zoltan. So if you know anything about me, you know that I love the book Jane Eyre. It's probably my favorite book of all time. And there are many people who read holy books as part of their sacred practice, but I am not one of them. And I'm sure, you know, there will be raised eyebrows about this. But the Bible for me is didactic, dense, and kind of boring. And so my experience with reading any type of holy book has been much different from reading novels where I get sucked in and I tend to learn a lot about myself and relationships and world events and conflicts and hard decisions from the characters that I'm reading. So when I heard about Vanessa Zoltan's book about Jane Eyre, I knew I had to read it. So in essay, she takes quotes from the book and examines them in terms of the meaning we can extrapolate from them, how we can gain sacred insights from this mere secular story. I have read and taught Jane Eyre, but I managed to get some things from this book that I've never really considered before. She also has a chapter about Harry Potter, and she has has a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and she also discusses The Great Gatsby. So if you are a person who you know, maybe you consider yourself spiritual, not religious, and you love literature, this might be a book that that will appeal to you. So again, it's called Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice by Vanessa Zoltan. I heard her, the author of that book, on a podcast talking about her Harry Potter podcast, and it was really interesting. In fact, um, she had, I think it was three or four questions that she asks from every text. And I remember that I did it in our book club for probably a year. And it ended mm-hmm. up creating a lot of good discussion. Okay, Robbie or Matthew, who wants to go first? I will, I will go first. Okay. Uh, so I recently read a book called Why Fish Don't Exist by Lou Miller. Yeah. She's the host of radio. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I liked her as a podcaster. And I don't know how I found this book. But anyway, it's part memoir. It's a little bit about her experience, which is kind of in the podcast mode, that the, kind of this American life mode, where the, the author's presence is there, right? So you're getting her story along with the story of uh, the man who created the first taxonomy of fish, of creatures of the sea, which he identified all as fish. And this sounds very dull, but there's a a bunch about colonialism, about self-delusion. There's some murder. There's like the beginnings of Stanford. It's a very complicated story (laughs) that she weaves her own story through. And it's, it's wonderful and fascinating. And because my summer job is a fisherman, I fish for salmon in Alaska. That's what I do in the summer. I thought that it would be interesting from the fish angle, but the fish was just like a tiny bit. For those of you not interested in fish, it's still very, very interesting. (laughs) But I I think one of the most interesting things that I came to understand was that she explained that we we have this broad category of fish uh, as creatures in the sea, 
creatures in the sea are as varied as creatures who are not in the sea. Mm. So to say that one fish is like another fish and to identify them in the same category is nonsense. That would be like saying a mountain goat is the same category as an alpine climber because we find them both on the top of a mountain. So then that brought me to a little bit of a personal crisis because at one point she asks, should we be killing fish? Mm. And the answer is no. And karmically, I've, I've probably killed hundreds of thousands of fish at this point <laughs> in my life. I'm a commercial salmon fisherman. So a little bit of a you know karmic issue there for me. So we'll see. Anyway, I don't know that I'm going to be doing anything with that information, but it was a fascinating book. Yeah, Actually, that's been on my list for a while. It's fun. All right, Matthew? Well, this goes back to uh, our discussion about graduate school. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm always curious about how writing works and how the teaching of writing works. In how did part, I, yeah. Because you don't understand how your own writing works. I don't understand where I, my ideas no. come from. I don't understand where my creativity came from. Yeah. In high school, I thought I was going to be a great poet, mm. a great, great poet. And then I went to college and took a poetry writing seminar. And I realized <laughs> that I was very, very deluded in that belief. <laughs> but, but later I took a fiction writing seminar with my mentor, my, now my friend, Jim Shepard. He's an amazing uh, novelist and story writer. And Jim taught through this wonderful combination of wisdom and humor. And humor is so important to me as a literary device, as a way of communicating, as a way of overcoming uh, confusion, challenge, disagreement. So my book recommendation is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders, which is the most thoughtful and cogent and appealing distillation of how to write fiction that I've ever encountered. Um, it was a recommendation of my friend Morgan, Morgan Murray, a Canadian novelist, go read his book, Dirty Birds. He's a brilliant guy. He said, you got to listen to this. And he said, listen, because it's an audio book, in addition to a, a written book. I have listened to George Saunders talk about how to be a writer four times now. I think I'm, I'm on my fifth listen through the book. It is so brilliant. And it, you he, have it as he, an audio book. He, he's not actually reading it. No, no, he's <laughs> reading it to me. Right? He's reading it to me. As is Alicia Rashad, Rain Williams, Glenn Close. As the star-studded uh, group of actors read seven Russian sto short stories that George Saunders then breaks down in this just, just incredibly smart, thoughtful, funny way. And then uses each as a way to talk about a different aspect of the writing and the editing process. And it's a brilliant read for writers, for people who just want to understand the human mind better, or people who just want to hear some wonderful, timeless stories. So I can't recommend it highly enough. I love it so much. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And that refers to one of the stories in the book. Very huh. cool. All right. I will have to check that out. Oh, it's just wonderful. Awesome. All right, Amy, what have you had going on over there? Well, you know, I read several romantic comedies over the summer that were very, very good. But I think the one that I'm going to talk about today might have been my favorite. It's called Charm City Rocks by Matthew Norman. And it's set in Baltimore. And it features a single dad named Billy Perkins who lives in an apartment over a record store in a very cute, quaint part of town. He's a music teacher and he lives with his teen son, Caleb. And Caleb is his child with uh, his college girlfriend, but she declined to marry Billy when she became pregnant. But they have a very good co-parenting relationship. So Billy is often trying to, you know, give his teenage son, Caleb, like little pearls of wisdom about being a man. And he talks a lot about a teen crush that he'd had when he was a teenager on a member of a popular girl band from his youth called the Burnt Flowers. Uh, it was a drummer named Margot. His son, Caleb, is worried that his dad is lonely. So he hatches the scheme to get his dad and Margot to meet by tricking Margot's publicist. This turns out to be a disaster because Margot has been a recluse for years after her very public uh, disintegration of the band, and she's been tricked by this kid to come all the way to Baltimore. But there's something about Billy that she continues to think about, and maybe she can get her life back together. So there were several things that I really liked about this novel. One, Baltimore serves almost like a character. You get a really deep dive into very Baltimore specific things. And the author, Matthew Norman lives in Baltimore. Also all the different relationships were fun. Both Billy and Margot have teen or young adult children. You, you see Billy with his son, you see Margot with her daughter, 
you see these two sort of young adults watching their parents trying to reconnect in, in a in a romantic relationship. The other thing I loved was that Margot was interested in being with a nerdy good guy. I really tire of the trope that you see in a lot of romance or fantasy books where there's always like this alpha male or this toxic masculinity. I like a nice guy. So this has a nice guy. Um, This book had a little bit of a feel of like high fidelity or some of the books by the British author uh, Nick Hornby, but it also had some vibes of like Daisy Jones and the Six by Tara Jenkins Reid, where you see like the behind the scenes of of a well-known band. Anyway, overall, it was just a delight. I listened to it on audio. It was a great audio book. I gave this one almost five stars and I want to read more books by Matthew Norman. So again, the name of that book is Charm City Rocks by Matthew Norman. Robbie wrote that down. I did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds great. We came from Baltimore to Chestertown. That's where we lived before we, uh, before we lived here. Yeah. Yeah, It's a, it was a really fun book. I forget. There's a beer that they talk about that everybody drinks there. Yes. They talk about Natty Bow a lot, a lot. Uh, but that is an authentic Baltimore book then. All right. We are going to take a short break uh, and then we'll come back and do our Fast and Furious. But before we come back, we're going to get one more book recommendation and then we'll talk to you in a minute. Hi, my name is Amber Myers on Instagram. I'm at ambers.always.reading. And a five-star book that I have read this year that I really, really loved is Little Thieves by Margaret Owen. It is a young adult fantasy, but I think it's more of like an upper young adult. There's a lot of things that happen in this book. It is a fairy tale retelling, which is one of my favorites, but it's told through the villain's point of view. It's the retelling of Goose Girl told by the maid, and her name is Vanya. So you spend most of the book in Vanya's head. Her inner thoughts are hilarious. She is a morally gray, kind of like unreliable character, but you learn to love her. It's centered very heavily around found family. There's a lot of growth that Vanya goes through, which is really cool to see. It's also illustrated, and Margaret Owen does the illustrations herself, which is so awesome. It's a really unique story. The whole like lore and vibe and feel of the world and the characters is just amazing. So highly recommend. We're back with Robbie Bear and Matthew Swanson, the husband-wife team that brings books to you, like The Cookie Chronicles, The Real McCoys, Sunrise Summer, and many more. All right. Are you all ready for your Fast and Furious questions? We are I mean, ready. I'm a little nervous. But <laughs> we can be furious. We might not be able to be fast. All right. <laughs> all right. What is your favorite thing to do when you visit Alaska each summer? Oh, Well, I think my favorite thing doesn't sound very exciting, but I love to, we live on a bluff. I love to stand on the bluff when the wind is blowing really hard straight up the bluff and just stand in the wind and smell the tundra. It's just, that's my happy place. We didn't talk about this in the beginning of the show, but Robbie, your family has had this fishing camp since you were a little girl and your family has gone every year and now you yes. and your kids go every year to mm-hmm. summer to this rural part of Alaska on the shore and you fish for yeah. like two months. Sockeye salmon. We do it for about five weeks. I saw your pictures from there and I was curious why you did that every summer and your book Sunrise Summer cleared that up for me. So oh, good. Thank good. You. I had to twist Robbie's arm to make that book. She said, this isn't interesting. Nobody's going to want to know about this. <laughs> so sometimes we have to step out of our own story and realize that others do find it interesting. Super so, interesting. Yeah. What does tundra smell like? It smells a little bit piney, mm. a little bit mossy. Yeah. Also kind of sparkly. I don't fresh. know. It's so fresh. Sparkly. Yeah, just- oh, I love that as a yeah. description of a scent. That's fun. If Here. anybody <laughs> ever creates Essence of Tundra, I will buy Tundra. Tundra. <laughs> I will buy all of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what is the best thing about living in the hayloft of an old barn? Well, I think our children would tell you that for the past 15 years, we've had uh, playground equipment hanging from the rafters in the living room. And they have uh, spent their entire youth swinging wildly about doing backflips onto the couch. 
they all have rock hard abs from all of the, uh, <laughs> the, the the rings and bars and such. We don't have a yard here. That we have a landlocked barn. We're surrounded by pavement on all sides. So the jungle gym in the living room, I think, is what they would say. I'm surprised that you didn't say. I think Matthew likes living upstairs. So the downstairs. Uh, it used to be my mom's pottery studio since she passed away. My dad still uses it to like putter, yeah. to putter. Yes, it's po- mm-hmm. it's a pottery now. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we live in the upstairs in the hayloft. And that means that we're sort of like in a treehouse yeah. where people can't just like do the drop by, which Matthew loves. I, I love a drop by. Matthew does not like an unannounced drop by. Mm-hmm. So nobody can do an unannounced drop by. You guys because, can drop on. Yes. You guys are good. <laughs> Bring the tundra and yes. come on over. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, basically, yes, we're sort of like in our own little world up here that we can crawl down and go I mean, it's beautiful. out. In it's our, an old barn. There's yeah. beams. The wood is old. It's a yeah. big vaulted space. Like it's just a beautiful space. It's an inspiring space to make stuff. And Ma- Robbie's mom made stuff here for 30 years before we did. So we're continuing a, a multi-generational legacy of creativity in this space. And it feels really good. Oh, that's amazing. That is an awesome answer. All right. Number three, weirdest experience from your year of travel on the book bus. Uh, In the middle of the night in Hocking Hills, Ohio, I had to go to the bathroom, which meant I had to leave the bus. I had to walk, you know, a little ways to the public restroom. And as I was walking back, I saw a giant fireball in the sky. Oh. It literally looked like it landed like the next hill over. So I I came back to the bus. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Do I like call the police at that point like it was already done there was nothing to report so i said maybe i'll google it so i googled fireball in ohio tonight came up with a website that's called fireball.imo.net there is a <laughs> fireball reporting website really wow that I encountered. And you were yes. not the first person i was to not the person, person to report it somebody no. got video of it from their garage cam so like huh. anytime uh you can look at it and in the time that before i showed it to matthew the next morning there were already 12 more fireball events that had happened <gasps> oh wow so they're happening all the time and they're being recorded by some very um thoughtful people who started fireball.imo.net but we don't know what the fireball was it was just a, a small meteorite Oh, oh. It, it was so trifling, like that nobody even like cared to mention it anywhere else. It just showed up there, and that was it. Robbie still hasn't gotten over it, though. No, you know, could see her eyes. Her eyes are wild. Right? <laughs> I, guess, I guess I didn't realize that there were that many little pieces of meteor flying around. That's what I said. I was like, "This happens all the time." We are in I'm just constant about this? peril, friend. Yeah. Constant. <laughs> I'm struggling for weird. The most wonderful and probable thing was flying into a native village in the Grand Canyon uh, from the lip of the canyon. It was a three and a half mile plunge straight into the canyon. We were contacted by a a native school asking if we would come visit. And it was the first uh, visit that those kids had had since COVID began because the village had been shut and their school (sighs) had been closed. And so going into that community, being so warmly embraced, it was just we went in a helicopter. That was how. Oh, we did flew. I not say wow. that? Did, not oh, yeah. did I say I was flying? You said you were flying. Okay. Uh, well, it felt like I was flying. That would have been really weird. <laughs> it was. But it was we spectacular. were in a vehicle that was meant for flying. No motorized vehicles. This is the village of Supai, and it was the Hava Supai School. Yeah. Oh my gosh! They, they flew us out with the trash the next day. There yes. were no scheduled <laughs> passenger rides, so they threw us out with the trash, and we were very happy to go with the trash. <laughs> Okay, last question. Carrie has three kids. I have three kids. Yeah. What was the hardest thing logistically about traveling with four kids and two dogs during a year of travel? I mean, honestly, the the, the kids were incredible. They could have made this trip like the most miserable trip ever. They were great. I think the thing that was the most annoying was that we little literally would pull away from a gas station where we had stopped to use the bathroom, and literally three minutes later. One of them. This we're not going to mention. We're not his going to name. mention which one. <laughs> there was a he knows who he is. But you know what? Would perk up and be like, "Oh, are we leaving? I have to go to the bathroom." This child concentrates very hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and earlier in the trip in the state of Vermont, we did leave that child at a gas station. So this might all have been just retribution for that one shocking act. Well, when you we got, got him, we we didn't leave him for very long. And he was yeah. There's was no reason to get short. upset. It was probably like three months. We're just testing him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, 
yeah, it it was good. It, given the, the the challenges on paper, I was amazed with how smoothly it all went. We can't thank enough our kids for for what they did to make this dream of ours possible and to be part of it themselves. You all have been such a fun interview. We have loved every minute of it. Thank you both so much for joining us. We appreciate it. It's been a real Thank pleasure. You Thank you for having us. We had a great time. You can find Robbie and Matthew at their website, Robbie, R-O-B-B-I, and Matthew.com to get all the details about the bus and their books and their writing and Matthew's terrible drawings. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. To send us a message, go to our website and click the contact button. Amy loves to make friends, and the best way to be friends with Amy is to leave us a great review on your favorite podcast platform, and then you can send Amy an email and let her know you did it. She will be thrilled and will email you back. I will not contact you, but will appreciate the podcast love. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.